Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we're really going to start off today um, doing a compare and contrast between David and Saul. All right, so First uh, Samuel chapter 13, and while you're turning there, let me pray for us. Father, hear our prayers. Help us make the most of our time, even as we read over passages, Lord, that we might be very familiar with. Uh, we do not want to just grow through the motions. Uh, we want to grow. We want to be uh, men of prayer, men of worship, men of faith. Uh, And to a large degree, Father, we already are by Your grace, and we thank You for how much You've already worked in our lives. Uh, But we do not want to presume upon You. Uh, You have been so gracious, so generous, so kind to all of us, but we want to lean into that grace, Lord. Uh, We want to read Your Word, study Your Word, think about Your Word, seek to apply Your Word so that we can grow up into godliness. Would You more and more be making us into the men, the leaders, the ministers that You want us to be? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And what we're going to do today, and we'll do this uh, multiple weeks, is we're going to kind of go back and forth, not just looking at David and King Saul, but also looking at uh, the historical books and narratives from Samuel primarily, uh, what they teach us about the life of David, and then what we see in David's prayer life in the Psalms. Okay, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you're just doing, say, a read through the Bible in a year plan, and you get to the historical books and you're reading about King David, part of what you see, I mean, sometimes David almost seems superhuman, does he not? I mean, we know he sinned, we got some famous stories on that, but by and large, it's like David is the guy that steps up to plate and he just hits home run after home run after home run. It's like God's hand is on his life, blessing his socks off, and he is getting it right over and over and over again. It almost seems too good to be true. And then if you go and read the Psalms that he wrote during the same time that he is out there doing these great activities, at times he seems like a little middle schooler who got beat up on the playground and is running home to his mom and crying. But that's part of the secret to his success. All right, And so we want to try to go deep so that we can follow him in this course, that we can go out and lead ministries that will be fruitful for the glory of God, but do it not in this self-made, independent type way, but a way that's very dependent on God as our Father. All right, so uh, the first point today is just going to be Saul feared man. Saul feared man. And let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. Speaking of Saul. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines 
Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, uh, Samuel the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, so to speak, in the Old Testament, tells Saul, yes, you're about to go off on this holy war, okay? But before you do it, wait for me. I have to come. I have to pray for you. I have to seek the Lord's blessings. That's the way it worked. have to offer sacrifices. We don't know exactly, but probably what happened is Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days, and it's the seventh day, and it's the 11th hour, all right? It's almost like Samuel slash God was testing Saul, and he's like, I'm going to wait to the very last minute to show up. Often seems this is the way God does it, and Saul starts to panic because he sees his troops start to panic as the Philistine army is building up, and so his people are running away, and so Saul says, here, let me go over here and try to do this prayer and sacrifice thing, almost like a magic trick, and guarantee God's favor, but he sinned. And part of what I want us to just kind of acknowledge from the very beginning is that so much of our practical sin in day-to-day life, if you trace it down to its root, it's about fear. It's about worry. It's about anxiety. That we're far too concerned with what other people think about us. We're far too concerned about the results we're going to get in the ministry. Let me kind of make a side point here. I am not saying that we should be hands-off, passive, and not care whether our ministry is fruitful or not. We should be very passionate that we have a fruitful ministry. All right? That, that's a good desire. But we should always remember that my job is obedience and God's job is results. I can never guarantee the results. And when I get into the business of trying to guarantee the results of ministry, that's when I get into sin. And usually it's not driven by some good heart that I just love people a lot. It's usually driven by fear and anxiety and worry and I'm obsessed with my name and my fame and my glory rather than God's. And that's certainly what was driving Saul. Okay, skip down 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, read a little bit of a longer story here. Okay, start in verse 1 again. Then Samuel said to Saul, now listen, God's merciful. He said, hey Saul, you're not going to have an enduring legacy. Jonathan's not going to be the next king. But for now, I'll let you keep ruling. I'm going to still use you. I mean, God, God's showing mercy on Saul and yet he blows it again. So, 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now listen. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And listen, if the whole just war, you know, wipe out the whole nation if that bothers you. Uh, when we get done today, Patrick's going to do some Q&A and he'll answer all your questions and concerns about that. All right. So for now, we're just going to take it on faith. We're going to move forward. All right. Skip down to verse eight. 
He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people at the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the ox and the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good. And they were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following. And just pause. This is another thing that can bother us in Scripture. What do you mean God regrets? Is He having second thoughts? Is, is He changing His mind? Here's the best way to understand that. God's saying, I'm sad. I'm grieved. And just a side note for us. When we sin, it grieves the heart of God. God is a personal God. He's a relational God. He's not stoic. He loves us. And when we sin, He takes it personally. And that's not a sign of His weakness or anything like that. That's just a sign of how much He delights in us. And He wants that level of fellowship with us, right? If, if you guys are married or if you have a good relationship with your mom or your dad or a brother or sister and they sin against you in a personal way, it hurts. It grieves you. And it's the same with God in some sense. Okay? So, he's turned aside from following me and he has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Small side note, anytime you get into setting up monuments for yourself, usually not a good thing. Usually a sign of pride and not of trusting in and honoring the Lord. Then he turned and he proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and this lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They, right, not me, here's the blame shifting, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. So he's trying to put a spin job on it. Hey, I know they didn't technically obey. I did everything fine. They didn't. Uh, but they had some good reasons why they didn't obey. Good excuses. And Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord and rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Gilgal, excuse me. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because, look, here just he confesses, I feared the people and I listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go and Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. So God's sovereign. He had a plan. He knew this was coming, and it doesn't trump his plan at all. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. 
Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. There's so much here. Okay, let's just take a second to try to notice it. Number one, okay, intentional partial obedience is disobedience. Now, why did I say it that way? Okay, intentional partial intentional partial obedience is disobedience because we all know that in this life we're never going to be sinlessly perfect, right? But there's a difference in a genuine, sincere attempt to obey the Lord that's still tainted with my sinfulness because I'm still in this body of flesh, as Paul would say, and a kind of manipulative, secretive, purposeful, I'm going to obey over here, but I'm going to hold back this. And that's what the Lord hates. And that's what Saul did. I mean, he kind of went down and said, I'm going to do 90% of what God does, but not the 10%. I'm going to keep the best stuff. I'm going to spare the king. He intentionally disobeyed. And that's what grieves the heart of God. Okay, he tried. He, his conscience was sensitive to it. He knew it. So when he saw Samuel coming, he said, hey, everything's fine here. Nothing to see. He knew he'd sinned. Okay. And then even when he repents, do you notice? In some sense, he's honest. He said, I did disobey because I feared the Lord, but he's trying to, I mean, I feared the people, but he's trying to make an excuse. And then, I mean, again, look at his so-called repentance. Okay. He's like, listen, will you just go back with me to the elders? Will you just stay on my arm, Samuel? While I go to worship the Lord, did you notice what he said in verse 30? Your God. He doesn't even call him my God anymore. He's like, I know you have a deep personal relationship with this creator. I'm not really sure I do. But I'd like to keep everything looking very well for the elders of God's people. Listen, guys, any time that we get in a place where our motivation is primarily to be seen by men, we're in trouble, right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people in order to be seen by them. Listen, it's not wrong to practice your righteousness in front of other people. If you're living a holy life, that's going to happen all the time. The key is that phrase, in order to be seen by them. And then think about what Jesus says. Before then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I mean, at the, at the basement of your heart, where motivations happen. What's the real motivation? I want people to see me and praise me, or I want my Father in heaven to see what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and I want my Father in heaven to reward me. Guys, and that, that's what so much of this whole class is about, is making sure that we're living for an audience of one. Yes, other people are going to see us, but that we're not really driven by that. We're driven by what God sees. All right, um, Matthew Henry, he has this great quote. There's no such thing as a little thing, as a little sin, because there's no such thing as a little God to sin against. I mean, Saul was thinking, this isn't a big deal. It's not like I'm out there doing witchcraft or bowing down to a pagan God. But he says, you know, but when you intentionally disobey, it's almost just as bad. Okay? Because it's a personal sin. Now, I think that a sin that most Christians struggle with, and maybe especially most Christians who are in full-time ministry at least tempted with, is sometimes we desire to appear godly more than we actually want to be godly. you understand what I mean by that distinction? I had a friend, he used to be on Staffel Campus Outreach. He actually had to leave Staffel Campus Outreach because of some sexual sin in his life. And he and I have stayed friends and tried to help him get plugged into the right things. And at one point he was going to this new church and I said, man, have you met with anybody in this church 
right? It could be an elder, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a friend, a peer, an accountability group partner, and just told them about all the junk that you have done in your past and what you're still struggling with, what you're tempted with. I mean, he's got one of these traveling salesman's jobs. It's not the best job for some of his temptations. And he said, no, I hadn't told anybody. And I was like, that's not a good plan for righteousness moving forward. I said, you need to find at least one person, ideally more, but at least one person in your new community and talk to him about it. He said, man, I'm a new member at this new church in this new city. I don't want to appear like a freak show day one. But, But do you not see the problem there? Okay, you can keep up the good appearances and everybody will think you're a sharp dressed new young man in town. Used to be on staff with a college ministry. Got it all together. And your life can be falling apart on the inside. Or you can come in with humility and talk to one or two or three people and say, hey, let me tell you all my junk. And this is why I need real prayer. I need real accountability. I need real peer level, iron sharpening iron, people up in my business. And that might be a little bit embarrassing at the human level. But it'll be a lot better for your godliness before the Lord your God. And guys, we got to learn how to live that way, okay? And Saul is an example of what not to do. Skip down to verse 35. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Here's the key thing for us to learn from that verse, is that, listen, when Saul never saw Samuel again face to face, and it's not saying they never actually met, but what it's saying is Saul never went to Samuel again to say, hey, Meet with me. Pray for me. Pray with me. Saul basically never sought the Lord again. He never really prayed. When you study, if you had to just boil down the compare and contrast of King Saul and King David's life to one thing is this. David's life is filled with prayer. It's filled with the spiritual disciplines. I mean, he wrote virtually half the book of Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. Saul, you can barely find a prayer of his in the whole Bible. You can find maybe one place where he says this tiny kind of going through the motions prayer. Let's look at one more quick passage on King Saul. Flip over to chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 22. And skip down to verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, for all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Now this is later on once David has already started serving Saul and he's on the run and it's come to King uh, Saul's uh awareness that you know David's going to be king one day and Jonathan's made a covenant. But here's part I want you to see. When you start going down the path of caring what people think more than what men think, it will just leave you, lead you to a place of paranoia. I mean, you'll start to buy into conspiracy theories. Everybody's against me. The whole world is out to get me. I mean, even what Saul is saying doesn't make rational sense. He's like, nobody told me that Jonathan made a deal with David. Well, somebody told him because he knew about it. I mean, it's just an exaggeration. But you start telling yourself lies. Everybody's against me. You, you just panic. You freak out. That's where it leaves you, okay? Just this distress. You're consumed with what other people think about you. All right, now, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and let's look at David 
during this same period of time. If our first point is Saul feared man, the second point is David feared God. And in the right way, right? In the holy type of fear. The sense of awe, the sense of wonder, the sense of love and trust. The way we're supposed to fear God. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and skip down to verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. But Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is skillful, a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Okay, so God's presence is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. Skip down to verse 23. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Okay, now again, look at verse 18. David, in some sense, already has this reputation is like an Old Testament Renaissance man, right? He can play music, he can fight, he can do it all. He's, he's great. And yet, where is he? He's a low man on the totem pole, still working for daddy, taking care of the sheep. David's humble. At the end of the day, David really doesn't care what other people think about him. And part of real humility is seen in, I am willing to serve in whatever position God calls me in, whether that's high up or low down, whether that's out front or in the back. It's a great heart check. Okay? I mean, at some point very quickly when he's brought into Saul's court, again, at first not a warrior, not a general, okay, but a little boy playing the harp, <laughs> he must have pretty quickly figured out, I've already been anointed to be king. I don't know when that's going to happen. This guy's crazy. He's possessed by a demon. And yet, right now, God wants me to serve the demon-possessed king. And so I do it. So listen, I don't know exactly where all you guys are serving. I have a pretty good idea, okay? And you may not always get along with your boss. You may not always respect him that great. I don't think he's possessed by a demon, right? So just, it could be worse. And we should always have a good attitude about the places God calls us to serve, no matter how hard it might be. All right, chapter 17 and skip down to verse 15. All right, this is the famous David and Goliath chapter. We're going to just kind of hit some of the highlights. 1 Samuel 17, verse 15, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Right, so he's going back and forth in his free time. He still serves his father and the sheep. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. Okay, so basically he's still doing all these little errands, right? Take some cheese crackers up to your brothers, all right? Humble to do it. Happy to do it, even though he's going to be the next king. Guys, put yourself in David's shoes. If the prophet had come to your house, anointed you to be king, what do you think your attitude would be? I mean, I think I'd be like, hey, somebody better go get me some grapes, and I'm going to lay here on the couch, and you're going to feed them to me. You're going to serve me. You're going to honor me. I'm not working, cleaning up sheep poop anymore, whatever, you know, a shepherd had to do 
David's humble. Verse 22. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper, and he ran to the battle line, and he entered in order to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words. And David heard them, and all the men of Israel saw the man. They fled from him and were greatly afraid. I mean, the entire army is running in fear because that's what Saul was doing. But David, when he gets there, although he's a boy, a teenager, he runs to the battle line. He's excited. Skip down to verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord will deliver who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, may the Lord be with you. Listen, when you are struggling with fear as a ministry leader, the people under you will probably be struggling with the same fear, worry, and anxiety. It'll bleed down. It'll be an epidemic. But when you have real godly confidence, that also spreads in a very positive way. I mean, listen, Saul comes in. You can't do this, David. Saul's fearful, and he's trying to influence David with his fear. David has confidence. I can do it. I did it with a bear, did it with a lion, do it with this guy. Because it wasn't really me, it was God. I mean, notice David didn't say, Saul, you've never seen me with a slingshot. I'm a stud with a slingshot, right? He didn't say, I can, I can kill a gnat off of a hair. He didn't say anything like that, although it was probably true because he's boasting in, I know that ultimately it was the Lord. The Lord fought through me. The Lord fought with me. The Lord fought with me and for me, and that's how I was able to kill these big animals, and I'll kill Goliath the same way. And eventually, his faith wins out over Saul's fear. All right, skip down to verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, and I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. So this is what you call holy trash talk. Goliath came out and said some very mean things to David and Israelites. And David said, no, I'm going to kill you and chop your head off and kill all your friends for the glory of Jesus. All right, that's kind of my personal summary. Uh, then it happened when the Philistines rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle. Again, here's this confidence, this fearlessness toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag, took it took from it a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Then David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. I mean, that's insult to injury, cut off his head with his own sword. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. Total rout, total victory, okay? Yes, David chose a smooth rock. 
David used his sling. David stepped forward in confidence, but ultimately the Lord gave the victory. So yes, we all have a part to play. We know this. We need to go to the campus. We need to initiate. We need to meet students. We need to think of the best evangelistic tool and illustration and verse and way to package our testimony in a way that will impact students. We need to do all that. But at the end of the day, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. We need to pray and say, God, bless the work of my hands. Bless my words. Give me a sense of supernatural anointing and unction. Whether I'm speaking to one student one-on-one in a coffee shop, I'm speaking to 10 guys in a fraternity Bible study, or I'm speaking to 100 people at a campus meeting, or 1,000 people at a New Year's conference, it doesn't matter, God. Bless my words to pierce hearts, to convict, to give life. Okay, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. As I'm out there speaking the word, right? I'm not using the sword, literally. I'm using the sword of the Spirit, God. Pierce people's hearts and give them life. Do the supernatural work I can't do. I'm going to do the part I can do, Father. But if all I do is go out there and do it to the best of my ability, it'll be a failure. But if you bless, even my weakest efforts can have supernatural results. All right. One more David example here. Flip over to chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21 and skip down to verse 10. 1 Samuel 21 and skip down to verse 10. This is later again when David's on the run from King Saul. Then David arose and he fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I like madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Okay, now go ahead and flip to Psalm 34. Okay, but while you're flipping to Psalm 34, let's just think about this for a second. I mean, Saul was trying to kill David. David didn't just stand there and say, I trust the Lord. I'm not worried about you. No, he used the brain that God gave him to run away, right? He used the body that God gave him to practically do everything he could to run away. And he got so desperate, he ended up running to the Philistines, his enemies. And then when they figured out who he was, and he thought, man, they might kill me, he starts to act crazy. Now, this is a type of deception. This may bother us. But I think this would essentially be like a just war type ethic. I mean, imagine Corey Timboon living in uh, Nazi-occupied Europe during World War II. And if the Nazis and the SS come to her door and say, do you have any Jews hiding in your house? It's the right thing to do to say no. <laughs> so D- David is on the good team and they're on the bad team and he's trying to get away. It's not wrong to use all of the tools at our disposal legitimately to try to advance God's purposes as best we understand them. Okay, But here, here, here's where you get into trouble. Anytime you sin, anytime you clearly break one of God's commands because you were too concerned what people thought about you or what people are going to do to you, that's where you get into real trouble. Okay, now, I mean, I, let me just give you a personal example. One of the times, uh, one of my sons was 
arguing, I think, with his mother. And, you know, I'd kind of come in the room, was catching the tail end of it, but he started being very disrespectful. So I kind of pulled him out and was talking to him later. And he's like, Dad, what Mom was saying about me was wrong, and I had to defend myself. I mean, that was his excuse. And I said, buddy, I can understand what it feels like to be wrongly accused. But even in that moment, there's, there's a right way to defend yourself, try to speak for yourself, try to protest humbly against what mom is saying if she's misinformed. But to be disrespectful, you don't get that excuse. And what that shows me, now I didn't go into all this with him because it would have been a waste of my breath and his time. But what I understood in that moment is, in that moment, he felt so fearful and so upset and so concerned about somebody having a wrong opinion about him. He was willing to do whatever it took to vindicate himself. You ever felt that way? I will say or do whatever it takes to vindicate myself. And we're not supposed to be that way. I mean, I'm suppo- if, if, if there's a legitimate way for me to speak for myself, go for it. But when I'm going to have to cross the line sinfully, I shouldn't do it. Now, Psalm 34, we're going to look at one of the prayers that David wrote behind this. Okay, um, So here, here's our third point. All right, um, David feared God more than he feared man. It's not that he never feared God. Man, he feared God, though, ultimately, more than he feared man. Now, my computer just told me that it's about to die if I don't plug it in. So just pause for about 10 seconds, all right? All right, there we go. Good as new. All right, Psalm 34, and we're not going to read this whole psalm. Okay, but we'll read a lot of it and look at the title. Okay, you get a different name there, but it's talking about the same story. And what I want you to notice as we read this psalm is what we don't see David doing is saying, Man, remember that day I almost got caught by the Philistines? I was so smart. I was so quick on my feet. I came up with a great last minute plan. I got myself out of there. Although technically that would be true. That's not what he spends his time thinking about and meditating on in his heart. Look at what he says. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Do you see what David's doing? He's saying, God, you did this. You freed me. You provided for me. You fought for me. Yes, I have fears. But here's the difference. When David had fears, he took them to the Lord in prayer. He he rolled his anxiety onto the Lord and said, you help me. You fight for me. You do the part that I can't do. Rather than doing something sinful like Saul did. Okay? And here's another summary statement, guys. Saul ultimately tried to be a self-made man. I'm going to figure this thing out on my own. And it blew up in his face, eventually. David ultimately was a prayer-made man. A God-made man. Yes, David did stuff. It's not that David just was passive, laying on the couch all day. He was active. But the most important thing David did wasn't his external actions with other human beings, like fighting Goliath. It was his prayer life, begging God, bless the work of my hands. 
And then after it happens, he gives him credit. Now, let me try to put this in modern day context for us. I mean, let's say that you plan some new idea about how to reach the most freshmen on your campus. Let's say your campus doesn't have a great intramural program or whatever. Okay, this is hypothetical probably for most of you. And so you decide, I'm going to invent a, a freshman football league for intramurals that, that will you know, supplement what the university is doing, and it goes gangbusters. You meet 400 new freshmen this fall. 50 of them come to Christ. I mean, it's, just, it's like a miniature revival on your campus. If when it gets to New Year's conference, if you're kind of sharing a testimony at the staff training about, let me tell you all the great wisdom and ingenuity I had, Listen, I love you, but you're an idiot because it'll probably never happen again for you. I'm not saying you can't say, let me show you some tips of some of the things that we did and the Lord blessed. But the main testimony you ought to be sharing is God was so good. God was amazing. I, I mean, yes, we had some plans. Yes, we thought they were pretty good plans. But I've had good plans before, haven't y'all? And they didn't go so great. But this time, for some reason, our, our decent plans went pretty good. Why? Because God was merciful. Because God was good. Because the wind of the Spirit chose to blow. And so I'm giving all the thanks. I'm giving all the praise. I'm giving all the credit to the Lord. Right? Unless the Lord builds the house, the labor in vain that builds it. It doesn't say put down your hammer and quit trying to build the house. Take your hammer or whatever they use in the Old Testament build house. Still go to build the house. But you do it all in a spirit of dependence on the Lord, looking for Him to come and bless. Okay. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Listen, guys, this is an Old Testament version of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If you put your greatest hopes and your greatest joys into the Lord, you will lack no good thing. You might suffer a lot. You might be like David having to run around, almost dying at times. But you can rest and trust, this must be God's best for me today. And so I'll rest in Him. I'll trust Him. Right? Yet though He slay me, I will trust Him. Is what Job said. Let me just read a few quotes here, okay? Derek Kidner says about verse 8, This is more than a casual sampling. So guys, if, if you get nothing else from this whole class, here's what I want for you. That when you read all the Bible, but especially the Psalms, that you slow down, you go deep. It's not just a casual sampling. That you're eating it. You're enjoying it. You're rolling it around on your tongue. You're getting all the goodness out of it you can. Here's John Calvin. The psalmist indirectly reproves men for their dullness in not perceiving the goodness of God. Listen, it's sin, guys, when we don't perceive the goodness of God in all of life. Back to Calvin. Which ought to be more to them than a matter of simple knowledge. They devour the gifts of God without relishing them. We have to stir up our senses that God's goodness may be made manifest to us. There is nothing on the part of God to prevent the godly from arriving at the knowledge of His goodness by actual experience. Okay? Here's John Gill. Again, this is all about verse 8 primarily. A saving experimental, experiential knowledge of the grace and goodness of God in Christ in such a manner as to live upon it, nourished by it. And though it is not a superficial taste of things like that of the hypocrites, nor a single one only, but it's frequently repeated. Every taste now influences and gauges trust in the Lord. Matthew Henry. 
Relish the goodness of God and all His gifts to us. Let God's goodness be rolled under the tongue as a sweet morsel. When I was a little kid, I was overweight. When we went on vacation to this same place every year, there was this restaurant and they had this great fudge shop. And I loved to eat fudge. But my parents were good parents, right? So they wanted me to have a piece of fudge on vacation. But they also were like, son, you're terribly overweight, so we're going to get you a really small piece of fudge. And dude, I would get this little small piece of fudge and I would milk it for all it was worth, like taking these little nibbling bites all the way driving back to our house. Like, I mean, I was, I was almost meditating physically on this fudge. I was soaking on it. You understand what I'm saying? I was trying to milk it for all the sweetness that was in this fudge. Guys, when you and I get up in the morning and we spend time alone with the Lord, that's got to be our attitude. God, I'm about to go out into battle. I'm about to go out into spiritual warfare. There's a real devil that wants to tempt me to sin, and I'm pretty prone to wonder, God. So I can't just have a fly by the seat of my pants, bare minimum time with you. I gotta, I gotta turn my phone off. I gotta get alone. I gotta get undistracted, and I've gotta soak and marinate and linger in the Word, so I can taste and see and experience your goodness, so that when the temptation comes later today, I won't give in. I will be so impressed by your goodness and your power and your reality, Lord, that when I'm tempted to fear the opinion of men, when I'm tempted to run to pornography or gluttony or too much drink or too much sleep or whatever it is, I say, no, no, no. I'm not saying there's no attraction in sin, but the attraction that the Word of God and the Spirit of God holds for me is so much more powerful like a magnetic beam. It protects me. All right? Matthew Poole, consider it seriously and thoroughly and affectionately. This is opposed to those slight and vanishing thoughts which men have of it. Guys, your time alone with the Lord in the morning, is it a slight and vanishing thought? Or is it deep? Is it transformative? Okay, look again at verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want. Again, it's normal to get scared in certain circumstances, right? I mean, if, if right now one of us heard a bomb blast outside of whatever building we're in, it would be normal to kind of, you know, lean back, cover our head. When David went to the Philistines running from King Saul, and he's like, King Saul's behind me, he wants to kill me, and now I've got a Philistine pagan king in front of me. He wants. It's normal that there is some level of fear. But here's the point that we're trying to make. That fear can never rise above the fear I have for God, the respect I have for God, the honor I have for God. Let me try to give an illustration that I think we can all appreciate. All right, we got mainly people in Alabama and Ohio here. Everybody loves college football, right? So you imagine this great football quarterback, and let's say they're playing against one of the best defenses, and he knows, man, this team has got defensive linemen, linebackers that love to eat a quarterback, sack him, hurt him, drive him down into the turf. But it's not wrong to be aware of that. It's not wrong to have some sort of fear, you could even say of that. But he has to have a greater respect for his team, for his coach. So he steps up in the pocket to make the touchdown pass. And even when he sees the D lineman coming, almost in his peripheral vision, what he says is, I have more respect for my team. I have more respect for the victory than I do for my own kind of physical safety. And so I stand tall in the pocket, I throw the pass, and I take the hit. So in life, you're going to go on the campus, and maybe there's an administrator 
Maybe there's a student leader. Maybe there's somebody that doesn't like you, that's mocking you, that's giving you a hard time, that's trying to get you kicked off of campus. It doesn't mean that you're not aware of that. It doesn't mean that you don't try to work as best you can to fix that problem. But you shouldn't be panicked. You shouldn't wake up with a spirit of doubt and despair and depression. Because, like, my dad is the God of the universe. He sits on a throne. Who cares what this little peon thinks? I don't care if the university president hates me. My dad is bigger than him. I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be as shrewd as a serpent. But I'm not going to do sinful stuff, and I'm surely not going to run in panic because I know that God is fighting my battles for me. Okay? And this is what we see in David. Just a couple more quotes. Here's Matthew Henry. What they want in one thing shall be made up in another. He said, have no want. There's tons of stuff I want. In the long run, if you trust God and you live faithfully, He may not give you every little thing you want, but He will give you the best things, the things that you didn't even know you wanted. John Newton, everything is needful that He sends. Nothing can be needful that He withholds. If there's some hardship in your life, it's because God loves you so much, He put that in your life to train you, to test you, to grow you, to develop you. Part of what made David such a godly man is he had to go through so much hardship. He spent so many nights in a cave. He, He was on the run so much. It strengthened his faith. It strengthened his trust in the Lord. It strengthened his experience of God. And anything he's withholding from you, no matter how good it seems to you right now, God knows it's not best for you. And part of the life of faith is, I trust your wisdom, Father, better than I trust my own. Why haven't you given me a revival on my campus yet? I don't know. But he knows. Keep laboring. Keep working hard. Work hard as under the Lord. Be as radically serious as you can about your faithfulness, but you hold the results loosely because that's his job. All right, a couple more verses, we're done. Skip down to uh, chapter 35, Psalm 35, because some people think these two psalms go together. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just a few verses here. Psalm 35, just the first three verses. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield. Rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. All right, so listen. If you don't remember anything else... All week, remember that little phrase right there at the end of verse 3. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Every morning this week, next seven days before we have class again, or whenever you spend time with God, if you do it in the middle of the day at night, I don't really care, all right? Hope you spend time with God every day. But when you do it, think about that, Lord. Hey, personally speak to me today, God. I know you're my salvation, but say it to me. Let me hear it with the ears of faith. Let me experience it. Let me taste it again, almost like I'm getting saved all over again. Let it be real. Charles Spurgeon said, this is about an inward persuasion of security. John Calvin said he's praying that God would grant him a lively sense of his favor. Think about that. A lively sense of God's favor, of his smile, of his delight. How freeing, how powerful that would be. Okay. There's more we could do. Okay. But, so much of what Good biblical Christianity maturity is, is this. I mean, y'all have heard this phrase, preach the gospel to yourself, right? Okay, we, I'm sure we've all heard that phrase. But let me just kind of add a little addendum to that. Preach your own history to yourself. 
remind yourself of times when you've been in trouble and the Lord has come through for you, right? I mean, have any of you ever gotten to the end of the year and you're like, man, my support account is in the toilet. It's not looking good. I've been there before, done that. Part of what helps you after 23 years on staff is sometimes I can say, God, support is not looking so great here in December. And then I say, wait a second. I've had at least four of the years like this. You know what? And every year, by God's grace, I've ended in the black. I'm still here. May have not gone exactly the way I wanted, but the Lord has provided. And when I remember His past faithfulness specifically in my life, it encourages me. It strengthens me. Now, some of you may say, I'm pretty young. I'm pretty new in the faith. I don't have all these great personal stories. But here's the reality, guys. And here's why I preach the gospel yourself is so true. If anyone is really in Christ, the cross is a part of my history. That the truer, greater David went to the cross. Think about that. And God felt like he'd been abandoned. But what did David, I mean, what did the true King David, the Lord Jesus Christ, do in that moment? He prayed. He quoted Psalms back to God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So he's praying. He's honest. Into, my, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And through prayer and meditation, he was able to endure on the cross the wrath that you and I deserve for all of our faithlessness. He was faithful in our place. I mean, he's a great example to learn from. His prayer, his meditation, his inner life. I mean, listen, if any human being ever had an excuse because of fear to back off of what he was about to go through right in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want to do this. He's about to drink the cup of the wrath of God for the sins of billions of people. I don't want to do it. That's legitimate fear. But because he honored and feared his father even more, because he had faith in the goodness of his father, he was able to persevere for us. So it's a great example for us, but much more importantly, it's our salvation, guys. Because even on the days when we blow it, even on the days we give in to fear, we give in to panic, we give in to worry, we give in to sin. We don't ever need to take that lightly. We need to repent. We need to say, by God's grace, I never want to do this again. But by God's grace, I will live to fight again another day. Because I'm not living based on my performance. I'm living based on the performance of Christ in my place. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. Help us take these truths and apply them. Make us into the men and the leaders you want us to be. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 